Welcome to Not Just a Shooter 1.3, brought to you by Gordon Fall of New York Life Insurance. Is attempting to fight Kendrick Perkins a worse idea than attempting to fight a man named Bloodsport? When you're Drake, I don't think it matters. website gordonfall.com that's g-o-r-d-o-n fall.com i am a sandbender joining me as always is bonsie chillips bonds chill the wizard of west michigan the grand villain and west michigan's number one mellow fan alex cook how you doing alex uh i'm doing pretty well you know i'm still smarting a little bit from the oklahoma city loss but we can talk through it well, I'll, I'll get over it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get to quite a bit of that. But before we do, uh, a, a pretty thorough deconstruction of uh, Oklahoma State's rather rough, or Oklahoma City's rather rough situation. Uh, we're going to start in the east. And very quickly, um, since, our, since our recording last week, we were in that kind of strange in-between period between the first and second round. Toronto managed to get past the Washington Wizards uh, in Game six, uh, the big key there, Fred Van, Van Vliet returned, uh, kind of sparking their bench, which is really one of the, the main strengths of that team. Also, Kyle Lowry actually uh, managed to close in a, in a playoff series, and John Wall did not. Uh, so the Raptors were able to advance in that one. The, uh, the more interesting and bigger series, uh, Cleveland got past Indiana in seven games. Um, Indiana had a huge lead. Lost it. LeBron dropped forty-five nine and seven in a game seven. Um, just another unbelievable performance from him. Uh, also, a bit of a change for Cleveland that has stuck um, was uh, inserting inserting Tristan Thompson into the starting lineup, not starting a point guard. Um, they really haven't gotten much out of that position. So uh, Tristan Thompson was was a pretty key player in game seven um, and. That's continued a little bit. Um, we have we have played game one of the Raptors Cavs series, and once again, uh, LeBron comes up pretty monstrous, even though he has an awful shooting day from the field. Um, but uh, unlike a lot of games in this playoffs, Bron did not have to drag his teammates along with him. Uh, he gets some offensive help. Uh, Toronto pushes out to a big, big lead, and then misses their last eleven shots of regulation. Um, and including inserting Van Fleet in cold with a bum shoulder for potential game-winning three-pointers in both regulation and in overtime. Um, the Cavaliers win. Uh, LeBron defending Lowry in the fourth quarter in overtime was really big for them, um, but this was just a, a very Raptors-like choke job, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is more Raptors than it is LeBron. I mean, LeBron hit the shot to send it into overtime, um, a pretty slick fadeaway over OG Ananobi, who guarded him through the fourth in overtime and was the kind of role player that was on the floor with the Raptors' four main guys. But the power is the Raptors. They missed a ton of shots. Valanchunas, who had a 20-20 game, missed a ton of close in shots near the end of the game so many and yeah the last possession with a chance to win they have maybe 
four or five chances, including, you know, tip-ins with the, the clock running down. They don't score. Cleveland leaps out to a, a decent lead to, in the start of overtime. They wind up holding on. Um, they kind of stymied DeMar DeRozan on ISO in that last possession, le- leading to the Van Vliet mystery. And interesting series. I mean, I wonder how much of this is just overreacting over game one, but it's hard not to feel like it's just the same old story for Toronto. Yeah, I mean, you have to feel for Raptors fans who have seen stuff like this time and again, but that that might have been the most painful of their losses, depending, oh, absolutely. On how, depending on how this series plays out, especially. But, I mean, you catch you catch LeBron going 12 for 30, and you, you still can't win that game. I, I, At home. It doesn't really matter how well J.R. Smith and Kyle Korver shoot. you you got to win that game. And, I mean, it, it looked for so long like they had things sort of figured out. Um, you mentioned OG's defense on LeBron was... I mean, that was strong. Um, they were getting, and, and Pascal Siakam was, you know, doing a decent enough job. I and mean, those two are kind of interchangeable pieces right now in their lineup. Uh, Siakam's not quite as strong of a defender, but he provides a little bit more of an offensive boost. And he, he did that in this game. He goes he goes four for five from the field, but didn't quite get enough from DeRozan. Valanchunas missed a ton of opportunities. And you don't want to say a team blew it, in game one of a series, but I don't know. It's, it is kind of hard to see LeBron relinquishing uh home court advantage uh, against a team that I don't know, could, could also mentally break from this a little bit. I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how the Raptors bounce back from uh, one of the most brutal game one losses I've seen. Yeah, it, it was really tough. And if they do manage to come back, it'll show a lot of fortitude on their part that we haven't seen from them in the past. I do think, I, I like Toronto's chances more than most people at this point, I feel like. Um, I do think that their depth is way better. So they can kind of pick and choose who to play alongside their four main guys, Lowry, DeRozan, Serge Ibaka, Jonas Valanciunas. Um, they have plenty of options. OG was the option in game one. DeLon Wright made a lot of plays in the first series um, against the Wizards with Van Vliet out with an injury. You can bring C.J. Miles in for shooting. You can try to sit Valanchunas and play Abaka at the five, which I think is something that they should definitely consider. And Cleveland, they have, I mean, their top four leading scorers aside from LeBron in game one were J.R. Smith, Kyle Korver, Jeff Green, and Tristan Thompson. So none of the new guys that they traded for, I don't think there's much chemistry there. I don't think that those guys are making much of an impact. And it's still pretty clear to me that LeBron is pretty undermanned relative to the Raptors. Yeah, no, I I certainly agree with you that this is still probably going to require a lot of work on LeBron's part to pull them through the series. Um, and I do expect that to, to peter out at some point, but I'm starting to wonder more and more whether at that, that point is the finals. Um, although it should be mentioned, Kevin Love once again was just awful just awful in this game and uh i mean not not only has he been uh his usual uh defensive liability self but he is not making shots uh he'd be unplayable in a lot of in a lot of series but like you said the the depth just isn't there i mean love plays 34 minutes in this game because unless you feel comfortable throwing going small and throwing jordan clarkson or rodney hood out there they're just there's just not a lot of options for them right now 
Yeah, not a lot of options. I do think one option, and you mentioned that he uh, kind of came on towards Game 7 of the Indiana series, was Tristan Thompson. So he had a double-double, played just over half of the available, available minutes in Game 1. And he allowed Love to play at the four, where he's less of a defensive liability and can kind of be on their perimeter. And Thompson's been as good as he's been all year, active on the boards, good rim-to-rim player. And I think his matchup with Jonas Valanciunas is going to be overshadowed by, you know, all of the all-stars playing, but could be sort of a bellwether matchup for the series a little bit. Yeah, and with Thompson coming on, maybe that is one way that you can get Love off the floor if he just continues to play this poorly. Um, although, again, not really sure who you put in there. But, uh, I mean, th- this should be a fascinating series. It's it's going to take uh, some more LeBron heroics. I expect we'll see quite a bit. Um, but uh, It's a good bet. It's, it's, uh, it really is going to be a matchup of depth versus just one transcendent talent. Um, and LeBron shows no signs of slowing down. I mean, it, some of his performances against Indiana were just absurd. I, I mean, I think Indiana was clearly the better team in that series, but just late and close games, if he needs to score, you know, over 40 points, he was able to do that. And uh, I think the Raptors are a little bit better than the Pacers, but I would not be surprised to see LeBron drag his team another round. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know... He he has cramped up a little bit. You can you can see a little bit of the wear on him, but it just does not seem to impact him when it actually matters. And I I don't know how he does it, but he continues to do it. Um, meanwhile, on the other side of the bracket, um, Boston was able to advance past uh, the Milwaukee Bucks, um, getting a lot out of uh, Al Horford, Terry Rozier, and Jason Tatum uh, to to get past. A, a poorly coached Milwaukee team. I mean, there, there's really no no way around it. Um, they do lose Jalen Brown to a pulled hamstring. Uh, Brown tried really hard to convince the trainers to let him back into the game, but not only did it uh, hold him out for most of Game 7, uh, but it also holds him out for Game 1 of the Boston-Philadelphia round two series, and Boston still manages to win on a short turnaround because Horford, Rozier, and Tatum combined for 83 of their 117 points. Uh, These aren't necessarily the guys you'd expect. I mean, Tatum's a talented player, Horford's a strong player, but uh, Terry Rozier has certainly come out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, uh, Boston, I mean, they, they do have home court, but uh, I don't think many people were expecting him to win game one. And all, all of a sudden, they've got uh, a lead on the Sixers, a team that many people had thought uh, might have the edge for the finals. I think that's where we were both sitting at the last time we we spoke. Yeah, and I still think that the Sixers are likely to advance at this point. I don't think anybody could have expected the Celtics down three of their best scorers to score 117 points on one of the league's best defenses. But like you said, Rozier, Tatum, and Horford, all terrific. Tatum is just such a versatile scorer. Rozier knocked in seven threes, which probably isn't going to happen again. He's not a very good shooter. Um, but he's played well throughout the playoffs. He, he won his matchup in the Milwaukee series. And Al Horford, as aggressive as I've seen him, um, definitely trying to take advantage of mismatches, assert himself more offensively than he has so far throughout his career, kind of generally speaking. 
And to me, the story of game one, though, was Boston shooting almost 50% from three and Philadelphia shooting 19% from three. Yeah, Boston, I mean, they're going to win a lot of games if uh, J.J. Redick and, and Marco Bellinelli are not shooting well. And especially since Bellinelli is a, a defensive liability if he's not bringing the offense. And, and that was the case in this game. Um, so, I mean, it's going to be very interesting to see kind of the lineup chess that happens in this game and how much Boston's uh, better coaching and better perimeter defense uh, will impact the Sixers because, I mean, it also impacts the way Ben Simmons can really handle the game. And, I mean, when you've got Marcus Smart out there, uh, that that's a huge different maker, difference maker defensively. Rozier's a, a pretty strong defensive player and a very active one. Um, this is just a more athletic backcourt than what uh, than what the Sixers were facing in the first round. And you've also got uh, an interesting player who's come in come into play um, both in Game Seven uh, of the Buck series and Game One of this series for Boston. Uh, Semi Ojale. Uh, was kind of their Giannis stopper and now uh, is is deployed some in the same role against Ben Simmons. And that worked relatively well in game one. I mean, Simmons Simmons had a solid game, but not a monster game. And so most of this postseason, Simmons has had monster games. Um, so that's been an interesting insertion from Brad Stevens. Yeah, I, I think that the matchups on Embiid and Simmons, whoever's guarding those guys, is kind of one of the major storylines of the series, along with Jalen Brown's health. Like you said, Ojale playing well on Simmons. I believe he played for SMU, and I can't remember if he beat Michigan or lost to them in kind of that home-and-home. Home. But anyways, Ojale has developed into a good NBA player out of um, second-round draft pick, and has been deployed on Simmons. I think Brown would be a good guy to have on Simmons. Horford has played on him a little bit. And with Embiid, which I think is a little more um, intriguing in terms of the tactics that Brad Stevens could deploy, he's basically choosing between Al Horford and Aaron Baines. And Embiid will get his points against Baines, but Baines will make him work for it and be physical and kind of provide a different look with Horford at the four or when he's giving him a break than... uh, than Horford, who's a little a little more skinny, a little more of a power forward than Embiid, who's uh, a true center and can really bully people on the block. Yeah, I mean, Embiid, he does drop 31 in game one, but it takes him 21 shots to get there um, and five more attempts from the free throw line. Uh, sorry, six more attempts from the free throw line. And he only pulls down one offensive rebound. Uh, so I thought, I thought Baines did a pretty decent job. I mean, you know, he did... It feels a little weird to say, say a guy did a good job defensively when he gives up 31 points and five assists, but uh, like you said, Baines, he does make Embiid work. Um, and also that, that offense can bog down a little bit when Embiid's just having to go to work in the post and it's not focused as much on the like Redick-Bellinelli ballet going on around Ben Simmons. Um that that's more when the Sixers offense I think is at its best. And so if they're having to go through Embiid as much as they did in game one, I think I think that's a win for the Celtics. And I mean, I don't know. I I I went from thinking Sixers in the finals to at at least one game in, thinking at least the Celtics are gonna make this a deep and interesting series. Uh and that, that might just oh, be definitely. because Brad Stevens is a wizard. <laughs> but um he's he's managed to I mean turn their third string point guard into a star first of all and 
they, they're a team that looks deserving of the two seed, even though they do not have at all the lineup they expected to have at this point. I've been continually impressed with how well they've coped with all the attrition. I mean, they lost several guys. I mean, their most important players, right? Irving and Hayward. They lost backup big Daniel Tice. They had Marcus Smart was out for a while. Jalen Brown is out now, but they still are playing well. And I've been most impressed by their defensive cohesiveness. I mean, you would think that with all of these random rotations due to injury that there would be maybe a few liabilities or hiccups, but it's been great as good as it's been all season. Both of these teams have an excellent defense and the player development, the player development is the other thing I've been super impressed by. Jalen Brown was not the type of dude who would score like he did in the Milwaukee series when he was at Cal for that year. No, he could easily have been Stanley Johnson. Yeah. Terry Rozier out of control downhill player at Louisville. Um, not maximized properly by Rick Pitino, to say the least. Yeah, I think we could say um, that. You know, he, he might not even be the only player uh, to come up in this no. podcast who was not fully maximized by Rick Pitino. I can think of a particularly notable player who wasn't fully maximized by Rick Pitino and whose career ended against Michigan uh, in the NCAA uh, tournament. We'll get to that later. About. Yeah, yeah, we will yeah, get to that. get to that later, yeah, but... We'll see. It's. I think it's going to be a good series. I think there's a lot of juice to the series. I mean, it's a historical rivalry that's been kind of renewed a little bit. And that is looking true. a little further, a little further down the line, these two teams are the two and the three seed. They're playing in the conference semis, and they definitely have the best outlooks of any franchises in the Eastern Conference, especially with LeBron waffling, uh, probably going to leave Cleveland, in my opinion. And you look Embiid and Simmons. They're young. Their best days of basketball are ahead of them. If the Celtics get healthy, they'll be a force that I think could potentially contend for a title. And there should be some very, very awesome matchups between these two teams in the playoffs over the next next half decade or so. Yeah, and it'd be quite a start to it if Boston manages to do it without any of their stars other than Al Horford. And I guess you can say Jason Tatum, too, although... Uh... The dude's 19, and that, that's the other crazy thing about He's their, so their defensive abilities. I mean, first of all, yeah, Tatum is just remarkably good for uh, oh, his yeah. age. I mean, the guy played 40 minutes in game one, dropped 28 points, um, hit 11 for 12 from the line, 8 for 16 from the field. Uh, he was he was doing a whole bunch of everything. And, I mean, you've been talking about how good their rotations are in defense. Their backcourt right now is two 23-year-olds and a 19-year-old. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, for – both player development, coaching. I mean, to be doing this, it's it's nuts. Brad, Brad Stevens. Uh, sorry, Indiana fans. Uh, he's he's not going to be coming around. No, yeah, yeah. I'm extremely glad that man will never be in Bloomington unless he's you know scouting a college game or whatever. Yeah, yeah. That that man is going to be an NBA coach for as long as he wants, and a a very successful one. But. Um, I mean, this was really kind of an unexpectedly interesting start to, I would say, both Eastern Conference semifinals. And, uh, I would agree, yeah. Sure. And, and right now, we're uh, there's a lot up in the air. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious to see where we head here, because with LeBron on one side, it, every time I start to question whether he can continue doing this, uh, he, he comes up with a game like he did in Game 7. 
Yeah, LeBron's one-man Sisyphus act is pretty great, but I'm rooting for a Raptors-Sixers conference finals just so we can rekindle the Drake versus Meek Mill beef. <laughs> Drake's trying to get himself killed, by the way. Um, by Kendrick Perkins. Yeah, that's a, that's a really questionable decision to talk trash to that dude while he's on the court, and it's a much more questionable decision to walk down the tunnel outside their locker room and yell, I'm out here in real life and ask for Kendrick Perkins to come out of the tunnel to fight you. Uh, it's a good thing Drake's all boys the were there players. to escort him away. Cause what are you doing, man? Of all the players to go after in the NBA, Kendrick Perkins, one of the ones I would want the least of, and Drake, I mean, he's Drake. What is he doing chirping Kendrick Perkins? I, it's yeah. Perk's probably number two behind Bloodsport and may even be tied with Bloodsport for the player I'd least want to call out on NB- any NBA roster. Um, yeah. So that was that was questionable on Drake's part. But uh, there have been a lot of questionable decisions coming out of, uh, I would say, I, I guess, rappers of that era. But yeah. we're not going to touch on that because everybody's had too much of that. So that's as, as much as I'm going to allude to an artist who's disappointed many people. Um, but... Anyway, that's that's the Eastern Conference. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back around with the West. You're an MGO blog reader, so you've probably already met Gordon Fall. Yes, the guy who comes to all of our events. Yes, he is named after Gordie Howe. Yes, Wayne Gretzky knows this and says hi, Gordy, whenever they cross paths. Seriously. Gordon has stepped up to sponsor this podcast, so we should tell you what he does. Gordon is a licensed agent with New York Life Insurance. He specializes in holistic policies for individuals with long-term goals and short-term financial situations. He would like to expand that roster now in anticipation of opening his own shop next year, and would rather work with fellow lifelong Michigan obsessives. If you're starting out in your career, growing your family, or beginning to think about retirement, you should talk to Gordon about crafting a plan for you. Visit GordonFall.com to start the conversation. That's G-O-R-D-O-N Fall.com. on to the west where playoff Paul and Oklahoma City are no more um, that's the one series that uh, ended since the last time we we recorded um, Utah advanced uh, past the Thunder uh, 96 to 91 in a game where Russell Westbrook scores 46 points but needs 43 shots to get there um, yeah for mentioned playoff Paul George uh, only scores five Carmelo Anthony. Worst game of his career. Carmelo Anthony is the most washed human being on earth right now. And uh, Utah gets enough from, I mean, Donovan Mitchell has a, a star turn dropping 38 points. Um, and they get uh, a few threes from Joe Ingles, who's been a, a consistent thorn in the opponent's side, uh, whoever he's facing so far these playoffs. Um, 
uh, and a nice it was a nice all around team effort from from Utah, um, which was pretty much the exact opposite of what uh, came from the Thunder. So uh, Utah advances, and uh, their reward is the one seed Houston Rockets. Um, game two just wrapped up tonight. Um, so while that's fresh on our minds, we might as well discuss that series. Um, and the first game was the first game all season that the Jazz lost while shooting greater than 50% from the field. They're now 20-1 and one this season. The reason is because James Harden and Chris Paul are quite prolific. Um, they either score or assist on 83 of uh, Houston's points, despite not having any assists to each other. I thought that was a pretty ridiculous stat. Um, and in Game 2... Um, which uh, just ended. Um, Utah turns it around. Um, it looks like they're going to blow it for a while. Um, they, especially when Mitchell gets into foul trouble at the end of the first half, and Houston goes on a big run after being down 19, cut it to nine at the half, uh, tie it up early in the third quarter, take the lead. Game starts getting chippy. Utah's offense looks like it's dead in the water. James Harden crams all over Derek Favors, and it just it just seems like it's all going Houston's way. And then Ingles hits a bunch of threes, and some stuff happens, and, and, and Utah pulls his game out. I'm still not quite sure what I just saw, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, tell us how Utah won this. <laughs> so Utah, um, in the proverbial game of runs, they managed to pull away in the fourth quarter. The Rockets didn't really shoot that well from three, and they missed a lot of threes late that could have cut the lead or made it closer. But Utah raced out to a huge early lead. The Rockets, over the latter part of the second quarter and into the third, um, went on a huge run themselves, mostly fueled by James Harden, who scored, I believe, 17 points in the third quarter. The Rockets pulled into the league, the Jazz, or into the lead. The Jazz weathered that run, and Ingles was huge. Donovan Mitchell even though he had a really inefficient day and missed a ton of shots, he w- he made some uh, big buckets in the fourth quarter. And yeah, one-to-one series. And I think this series has maybe the most interesting um, tactical dynamics of any ser- or series in this round. I think with Houston attacking Utah's defense, which eliminates three-point attempts, the Rockets love threes more than any team in NBA history. Uh, But Utah can afford to stick to shooters. They can afford to go over every screen, sink the big man into the paint. And with the best rim protector in the NBA, Rudy Gobert, he makes life a little more difficult for Harden and Paul. And that's kind of the recipe that San Antonio used to knock Houston out of the playoffs last year was – was planting the big man under the basket and having him go one-on-one with Harden. So it'll be interesting to see how this series shakes out. I'm pretty surprised that the Jazz won game two, but um, some interesting stuff going on between those two teams for sure. Yeah, it seems like at the very least the Jazz might be kind of laying out a blueprint for Golden State a little bit. Not that Steve Kerr necessarily needs to help. They they obviously have a different type of rim protector in, in Draymond Green, but... Um, but they're also a team that can stick to shooters, switch a lot, drop their, you know, de facto center into the paint. And I mean, we saw in game two, uh, Houston was starting to just back away from Rudy Gobert as this game went on, um, because that he actually um, he didn't end up with a block in game one, um, but he was he was just scaring them off in, in this game to the point where. 
He has three blocks. I don't think that even comes close to encapsulating his impact near the rim. And that's that really changes things for a Houston team that does like to attack downhill a lot. Uh, James Harden has some success going to the rim, but really does have to work for it a lot. Chris Paul has to work pretty hard for his shots. And then Houston just doesn't get much secondary scoring. I mean, Capella had a monster game, but um, P.J. Tucker only scores five points. Trevor Ariza only scores five points. Um, Luke Richard and Mabab Boot, who's not exactly a guy you expect to chip in a bunch of offense, uh, only scores four in 16 minutes. Um, other than Eric Gordon, who's not great defensively, not a guy you want to leave out there for a ton of time, plays 34 minutes, goes 5 for 16 from the field to get to his 15 points. So it, this this felt like the beginning of a series that's going to be more interesting than we expect. And, I, th- I mean, I'm shocked that the Jazz were able to do it, but especially without Ricky Rubio. But Donovan Mitchell looked like an incredible point guard in this game. And that was, I think he had five assists within the first six or seven minutes of the game. Um, finishes with 11 um, he wasn't shooting great, but he's so good at breaking down defenses, and I expect his scoring will come along. That uh, this this felt promising for Utah, and that you know you you get a six for twenty one game from Mitchell. You know you're probably not going to get Joe Ingles exploding for twenty seven points every game, but you can kind of flip those two guys' roles and expect things to sort of play out similarly as things go on. And then tactically, like you said. Um, this one gets interesting, not only in terms of how Houston has to attack Gobert, but then when Houston pulls Capella out and tries to go small, uh, Derek Favors was huge in this game uh, against Houston's small lineups. Um, he went five for seven from the field, pulled down an offensive rebound, and had an easy putback um, when Capella was out of the game. So it, Houston might get a little bit limited tactically by what Utah is able to do here. Yeah, I think... Um Sort of like the Cleveland-Toronto series, the big man matchup in this one between Capella and Gobert is kind of overshadowed by some of the other stars in this series, but pretty big bellwether matchup. As we've seen with our large adult son, John Teske, you can definitely protect the rim without racking up a ton of blocks. I feel like Gobert, regardless of his block totals, it's pretty clear that he is uh, an intimidator and anytime uh, any of the Rockets are shooting shots from 10 feet in, they have him in their heads and it's a lower percentage. And Capella, his impact, he had a good game in game two, but his impact sort of waned over the course of the game. Houston went a little smaller and um, they were able to space out the Jazz, but couldn't make enough threes. Um, And I think the other... One of the other interesting uh, dynamics in this series is with Rubio's absence, um, how much are they going to get from Alec Burks, who's pretty much sat on the bench for the first five games of the Oklahoma City series? He had a good game, too, in this in this series. Dante Exum has played more. He had an exclamation point dunk in game two to kind of cap off that win. He played a pretty well. Dunk. but yeah, huge. The dunk, dunk the dunk was maybe more. Uh, you know, Burks had the better game. Exum had the Exum had the big highlight. Um, oh, definitely. But uh, I did like. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't. I don't. I don't think I necessarily say Exum played great defense on James Harden, but he played obnoxious defense on James Harden, <laughs> and that that better I think is a decent most. start. Yeah. Um, even Raul Neto, who 
has barely played um, a Brazilian point guard. He has given them some good minutes in Rubio's absence. It will be interesting to see how that all, I mean, if he doesn't come back, I don't really like Utah's odds, regardless of how brilliant Mitchell is. And he is brilliant. It is hard to believe that Rick Pitino couldn't maximize him at Louisville. Yep. That he fell so far in the lottery is really a testament to Rick's crappy coaching. <laughs> glad we're getting all this in. I'm, yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad that guy's out of here. Um, but anyways, Mitchell, I said in one of our earlier podcasts, I'm like, okay, I don't think he's going to score, you know, 20 points per game every game against Oklahoma City. He did. Uh, he did play well in game one against Houston, although James Harden played better. He showed why he was the MVP with a 40-point game. But anyways, Mitchell, just a really special player. I do think one dynamic that he didn't have in the Oklahoma City series was that he was pretty much guarded exclusively by Corey Brewer and Paul George. But the Rockets can throw a lot more guys at him. Trevor Ariza, Luke uh, Richard and Bob Mute, and P.J. Tucker are all a little bit bigger, more physical wings. And they also have Chris Paul, who's one of the best point guard defenders in the league. So Ever. I wonder if all of their options over the course of the series, the collective effort kind of wears Mitchell down a little bit. Yeah, that that's kind of my biggest concern for Utah in this series, too, because Mitchell, I mean, first of all, he's having to play a ton. He plays 38 minutes in tonight's game, and it does seem to wear on him that Houston can throw so many defenders at him and that he's carrying such a big burden on the offense. He he does shoot rather poorly from the field. And you brought up Burl Neto. Uh Whenever he was in, I mean, he was in for eight minutes, um, but when, whenever he was down there on defense, Houston would just run a quick uh, one-two screen to get, and uh, Neto was trying to guard Chris Paul, and they just get Neto switched didn't on. Didn't work great. Which didn't work great, and then it especially didn't work great when they'd get him switched on to James Harden. Um, that is where a, a couple Clint Capella lobs came from, uh, and also... Uh, I think a couple foul shots and a couple more easy points for for Harden when they were charging down the stretch at the end of the first half, and it it really looked like the game was going to swing entirely in their favor. Um, credit to Utah, though uh, they they took a big punch impressive, and impressive and and came back on the road too. I mean, because that yep. that Houston crowd went from deader than dead to loud enough where the sideline reporter was having a tough time even hearing when she was supposed to speak. So, uh, yeah, a huge win for the Jazz, a series that might get more interesting than than we perhaps expected. On the other hand, um, Golden State's already up 2-0 on New Orleans. And while while New Orleans at least made it a much closer game in Game 2, they just, it it felt like they lost, they've already missed their chance. And... I mean, to, going down 2-0 against anybody's tough. Uh, you you don't want to totally discount the that New Orleans does get to go back home for the next two games. But I mean, Curry, it, Steph Curry comes back in game two, doesn't even start, hits like a pull up twenty five footer as soon as he checks in, puts up an obscene plus minus. Um, this was a game. Game two was a game where Kevin Durant really struggled. Um, Clay Thompson struggled as well in game two. Yeah. And they still scored 120 points. Yeah. It's, it's just the Warriors, you know? Yeah. And that combined with uh, the Pelicans trying to kind of dial up the tempo a lot, which I, I do understand Alvin Gentry's uh, strategy there in terms of trying to 
generate some offense before the Warriors are able to set into their rather impenetrable half-court defense, but it does very much play into Golden State's hands stylistically in terms of how they like to play offense. Uh, so the, this just seems like a, a matchup where New Orleans is sort of screwed. Yeah, I mean, pretty much everybody's screwed against the Warriors. When you can pull Steph Curry off the bench and he can have that good of a game, even though your other two like world-class scorers are playing relatively poorly. In a game two, they they withstood what might wind up being the best uh, offensive performance the Pelicans have in this series. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see this series end in four or five. Um, I think that's extremely likely. But the Pelicans in game two, Davis, Holiday, Rondo, and Miritich all played pretty well offensively. But it just wasn't enough to keep up. They cut the deficit to one with eight minutes left. So they played them basically even through 40 minutes. And then Kevin Durant, who had been relatively quiet, uh, scores a bunch, keeps them at arm's length, and they wind up winning by five. Game one, they blew the Pelicans out in the second quarter. It was mostly garbage time. And New Orleans likes playing at a high tempo. They liked playing at a high tempo when they had Davis and Cousins on the floor at the same time, which would kind of go against what you would expect, maybe. And once Cousins got hurt, they dialed up the tempo even more. And now Golden State is another team that likes to get out in the open floor and run. And it's a entertaining series. Rajon Rondo has played um, – Better than I thought. He has a little bit of uh, beef with Draymond Green, which which is interesting. They exchanged some words after game two. Yeah. Not hard to see those two getting into it a little bit. No, uh, those are two of the league's more uh, grating personalities, I would say. Um, Abrasive. On the court at once. Um, But, yeah, I mean, this... Yeah, this feels like a series where uh, you're hoping to get kind of an Anthony Davis supernova game in there somewhere. Yeah, you really need it. Yeah. Um, but that's probably what it takes for the for the Pelicans to get the gentleman sweep instead of the the flat out sweep. It's just a normal sweep, yeah. And Anthony Davis, he can look like the best player on the floor for stretches, but he's often on the floor against two uh, former MVPs. He's being guarded by Durant and Draymond, and he needs to be the best player on the floor for like decent stretches of the game for New Orleans to have a chance. And that's 40, 45 minutes or so. (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's a tall order for a player who's really good. One of the top five players in the league, but golden state, I I don't know what more you can say about them. Everybody knows how good they are. Um, Curry came back, no problem. And yeah, it seems like, uh, they're going to be sailing more smoothly into the conference finals than Houston is. I mean, Houston could legitimately lose to the Jazz, I think. Um, but I do think that it is probable, definitely probable, that we'll sit in Golden State in the in the conference finals. Yeah, I think we'll still get the matchup that everybody's been looking forward to. But that the Houston series is a whole lot more in question than the Warriors series right now. Uh, the Jazz could do the Warriors a rather massive favor because uh wearing them down a little yeah yeah both wearing down houston or if they happen to get past them i I just don't see a way that the jazz are able to keep this going against the warriors 
Um, and I don't know that the Jazz are going to be able to keep it going against the Rockets. They scored 116 points in Game Two. They're they didn't have a explosive great offense. Team, They're yeah. without their point guard. The Rockets are way better on defense than you would expect. Part of that is um, assistant coach Jeff Bizelic and because because head coach Mike D'Antoni is not known for his defense, but Bizelic is his not known for his offense. <laughs> no, exactly. So it, it works out. It's kind of like a John Beeline Yaklich uh, thing, yeah. but Houston also. Um, like Michigan got way better defensive personnel and that has made a huge difference as well. So it'll be interesting. Um, I don't think Joe Ingles is going to score 27 points a game, but I said that about Donovan Mitchell uh, during the last podcast. So who knows? Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, with the way Houston guarded him tonight, he could keep scoring 27 points a game. He's one of the best shooters in the league. And for some reason, Oklahoma city and Houston, don't seem to I, like they they don't get it i don't i mean i imagine i imagine they'll figure out to just like don't don't let the guy who's really good at shooting threes but is pretty slow and doesn't do a whole lot else shoot threes you'd think that's yeah, a, that's mean, a pretty easy adjustment to make yeah he can attack closeouts and he can't get all the way to the rim but he's you know decent with a ball in his hands for a wing but yeah run him off the line stick to him do anything but he's so much better as, as a shooter than at any yeah and a lot of these looks were uncontested too yeah so we'll we'll see we'll see how it turns out yeah i think the rockets will pull this one out but a little more difficult than we would have guessed absolutely um now quickly before we get to our post-mortem section i i have to get my last little bit of revenge on alex for uh the pop quizzes that he has sprung on me the last couple weeks especially since alex actually answered two of these nicknames correctly uh last week so he's still making me look bad um but uh so the the premise if you were not with us for the last couple weeks is that basketball reference an amazing site um has a lot of extremely obscure nicknames on uh on their player pages some of them the players don't even know about um so I have pulled from, I, I, I did cheat a little bit in that um, I have gone beyond the top five scores, but I have limited it to Western Conference teams. I've limited it to players in the rotation. Um, and I've limited it, limited it to teams that are still alive, which should make things a little bit easier. Otherwise, we were going to start running low on nicknames. I think this is the last time we're going to be able to do this gimmick. But anyway, to jump Let's right into it. it um, the first nickname on deck is The Hobbit. The Hobbit. Huh. I'm going to guess Raul Neto. It's Eric Gordon. Um, Eric Gordon, okay. That nickname was apparently bestowed on him by Marcus Camby because he thought he looked like a hobbit. Um, wow. So, that one's uh, interesting. Yeah. Not, not the nicest nickname in the world, uh, but uh, when Marcus Camby gives you a nickname, you go, thank you, Mr. Camby, um, especially when you're a, a young player in the in the league. So, uh, yeah. Um, so the Hobbit is Eric Gordon. I suspect you're going to get this one, but I couldn't help myself. Uh, the second nickname up is Big Smokey. Big Smokey. You think I'm going to get it? So... Jazz, Rockets, Pelicans, Warriors, Big Smokey. Huh. I have no idea. It's Clay Thompson. Oh, Clay Thompson. <laughs> and what's funny is that the nickname hmm. is not why he did not get it for the reason that I think most people would think, because most people think Clay Thompson constantly looks high. 
Um, but this is uh, Big Smokey is apparently his nickname in the locker room, but it was given to him by Andrew Bogut because it means dark horse in Australia. That is pretty random. I definitely focus more on the big part than the smoky part. If I would have focused on the smoky part, I'm going to guess Clay Thompson, who was also suspended for um, a weed infraction in college, I believe. Yes. But yeah, well, 0 for 2 so far. All right, nickname number three. I I enjoyed this one. It's Fat Man with a PH. Man, James Harden. No, although you're close in that it is a superstar. Um, Ooh, Fat Man is Draymond. I don't know. Draymond that, used to be. He was he was pretty large coming into Michigan State. He was, but the uh, the answer is actually Anthony Davis, um, and that has been, been his nickname since he was a baby. Because he said he came out at around 10 pounds. Um, there's actually uh, hmm. uh, a nickname or a, uh, an interview with Soul Collector um, about the, it, that touches on the nickname because it's attached to his sneakers are called Fat Man's. Um, so uh, that, that's been a lifelong nickname that he's attached to that. And he jokes that uh, he's got a twin sister and he took all her food and all her milk. Um, and maybe that explains Anthony Davis because <laughs> not a lot else does. Um, so he doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not the nickname you'd expect, but, uh, Anthony Davis is not a person you'd expect. All right. Nickname number four. Um, I had, I had to choose from a, a, uh, a great quantity of nicknames for this person, but, uh, nickname number four is the big secret. The big secret. Man, I have no idea with any of these. They're just so random. The big secret. Read my lips. No new taxes. Behind the back, down the lane, ankle breaker. Whoa. All right, I tried to trick Alex, and then we uh, we took a quick break for a uh, technical issue. And during that break, I, I totally let the name of the player in question slip. So the big secret is JaVale McGee. Um, he is also known as Big Daddy Wookie, the Great Adventure, and perhaps my favorite, uh, his producer alter ego, Pierre. And he released an album like last month. It's apparently not bad. Hmm. Um, I haven't listened I to it, Pierre. so I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna vouch for that hard. But Big Daddy Wookie, I felt like would have been a giveaway. Um, Eventually, because uh, that's a pretty apt nickname. And The Great Adventure was one that was kind of known from his time at Denver because of his, uh, it, it's always an adventure when JaVale is on the court. <laughs> yeah, I probably would have guessed Pierre, but none of the other ones, The Big Secret. I, yeah, I don't know. All right, well. I'm, Big Daddy book is pretty funny. Uh, I, I will try to shut you out on ones that I uh, have not given away um, with number five here, uh, which is Houdini. Chris Paul. Alec Burks. Alec Burks. For his uh, ability, that was uh, one that the Utah Jazz announcing group bestowed on him uh, when he was a bit more uh, promising uh, as a younger player um, for apparently his ability to escape tight spaces and get buckets. Um, That did work out tonight. Um, That has not necessarily been the case for uh, most of this year. Um, But uh, yeah, Houdini is Alec Burks. Um, so yeah, those were the West nicknames. Uh, we're going to take another quick break and we will be back, uh, with post-mortems for the four teams that were knocked out 
since we last recorded. Sorry to do this to you, Alex, but we we have to start off by uh, talking about the Thunder. There's a lot. There's a lot to say about the Thunder. Um, you know what, Russell Westbrook. There's a lot to say about him. There's a lot to say about how their roster is going to shake out this. And there's a lot to be said about how they got to this point. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, Ace? I, I have my opinions, but I'm curious to hear what you what you think about my Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, uh, I think we've touched on this before, but, you know, Russell Westbrook is probably taking a little bit too much of the criticism right now. Uh, I, I mean, I think he's a player that you can win a championship with. The Thunder have come rather close and have and could have done it other times if not for some flawed roster construction and, you know, getting rid injuries. of a couple of MVPs injuries. and injuries yeah. and yeah, losing Andre Robertson was was tough this year, obviously, but they they still had a a, a roster this season that I, I would say was rather poorly constructed, and and I think it all goes back to the mellow signing. Uh, he was a complete disaster. Does has not really integrated with the team. Does not do what they need him to do, and and worst of all, um, seems to have no desire to change his game or accept a bench role. To the point where I think, I mean, if, you know, Paul George has a player option, uh, he's most likely going to hit the open market. Um, and if he does not decide to come back to the Thunder and say wants to play for the Lakers, um, you might have to Josh Smith mellow here. Like, I mean, I, I think the stretch clause provision, like, comes into play at some point. Yeah, it, it was ultimately a flawed roster, I think. You know, kind of in response to Kevin Durant leaving the prior offseason, Sam Presti decided to put all his chips towards the middle of the table, traded off all of his depth for George and Anthony. Um, Oladipo and Sabonis have worked out great in Indiana. Paul George has been good for the Thunder, but like you said, Carmelo has been terrible. Honestly, I don't have a whole lot to say about that other than he will probably opt into that contract and probably will be a locker room cancer until he's out of Oklahoma city just based on how his quality of play is likely to decline even more than it already has. And he is still, you know, Oh, I should be a featured guy. Oh, I shouldn't be coming off the bench. Um, hard to believe he was in the same draft class as LeBron considering how, <laughs> little LeBron has fallen off, but Carmelo has fallen off a cliff and that's a problem. But really with the decisions to bring Paul George and Carmelo Anthony to Oklahoma City, that was kind of, I think, in part motivated by uh, the Thunder's desire to prove to Russell Westbrook that they were um, still planning on contending, still planning on trying to win uh a title really, which seems ludicrous right now, considering just how their season went down and how they were eliminated from the postseason. But Westbrook took the long-term deal. He signed through 2023. 
But like you said, George is a free agent. If I had to guess, I don't think he'll be coming back. Uh, and that will be a huge blow to the Thunder, who had Oladipo and Sabonis under pretty cost-controlled contracts. But the Thunder, just as a franchise, it looks likely that they will not ever win a title with um, one of the three MVPs that they drafted in consecutive drafts. And there will be a lot to be said once that has kind of... Um, that fate has been sealed. I think to some degree it may have been already, but Westbrook has come under a ton of criticism. I don't know how much to actually give him. So Oklahoma city has a pretty bizarre statistical profile. They finished second to last in playoff offensive rating, just have uh, Miami heat who do not have much offensive power to speak of. And, Oklahoma City was a team of extremes. They were the best team in the NBA at attacking the offensive glass, best team at forcing turnovers. So they led the league in shot equivalents per 100 possessions. But almost all of that uh, surplus seemed to go to Russell Westbrook, who was first in the NBA in time of possession, who took um, 10 jumpers a game during the regular season, even though he not a good shooter at all he took 17 jumpers per game against utah partially because of rudy gobert partially because he was kind of in more got to put the team on my back mode which in game six was fine game six paul george had you know a terrible terrible game russell westbrook still almost willed them to victory only a, a similarly awesome performance from donovan mitchell prevented oklahoma city from stealing that game six but you got to look at Russell. You got to look at how he has failed to become a malleable player, which is to say fit in well next to other players. Yeah. He doesn't sacrifice any part of his game. He always plays the same on offense, even if it's not the right move. Oftentimes, and we saw this even more in last postseason than this postseason, he scores as a volume score kind of inefficiently through three quarters keeps his team in the game because i mean oklahoma city they had nothing next to uh russell and paul george in terms of scores so he really did have to shoulder a lot of that burden but by the time the fourth quarter rolls around he starts taking progressively worse shots he gets more tired it it just doesn't work out and you know zach lowe he wrote an excellent piece about kind of how oklahoma city has to compromise and find a way forward without this as their defining style which is a very extreme style and one that's definitely not as conducive to winning as golden states or houston's um, especially in the playoffs especially in the playoffs and Zach Lowe, he wrote a long article basically detailing how oklahoma city has struggled to find a cohesive offense how it has been tried to be implemented by scott brooks and billy donovan over the years how it does um seem to hijack the offense at times and zach Lowe, amazing writer probably the best uh, american sports writer of all really um he didn't really come out with a definitive answer but kind of his conclusion to that article about the westbrook question about the style question was that the Thunder need other stars in a coherent system that enables them an offense that persists behind one desultory action to find both. They need Westbrook to play a little differently. It doesn't have to be some sea change. It can be a bunch of little things starting with those five shots a game that add up to something larger. 
Um, those five shots are referring to the five long twos he takes with time left on the shot clock a game. And when you're in the playoffs, those margins are so tight that that kind of stuff, you don't, you don't see that from other superstars. The guys that take a lot of shots, LeBron Harden, it doesn't seem like they take bad shots. Steph Curry can't take a bad shot. And when Russell's chucking up bricks with, you know, 18 seconds left on the shot clock, it really makes you kind of, uh, find it harder to defend him in my opinion as somebody who has been kind of a Russell Homer over the years. Yeah, no, it, it is getting tough and it, it does look like, uh, some rough times are ahead for Oklahoma city, at least compared to where they have been at for really the past decade and a half. Um, but yeah, and you can't really overstate the effect of some of those injuries. Um, one season, Russell Westbrook got knocked out early in the playoffs. One season, Serge Ibaka got knocked out early in the playoffs they took the 73-win Golden State team. They were up 3-1 in that series. So, they sure were. Um, even in the years where they didn't make the finals once, and it was they were too young, they faced you know a pretty much peak LeBron, uh, big three Miami team. But a lot of what-ifs and seeing Harden and Durant thrive so well in other places makes you kind of think that getting away from Oklahoma City was probably the best thing that could have happened to their career. And it kind of makes you point the finger at Russ a little bit. I know Russ does things that no other player can do in terms of his athleticism and intensity and explosiveness on offense. But whenever they whenever people criticize him, it's hard for me to uh, have any gripes with any of the individual criticisms. Maybe I won't agree with the, uh, you know, overarching thesis that Russ is toxic or whatever, that Russ's teams have an inherently low ceiling because of how he plays. But it's hard to argue that it's not a problem to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I'd also say that franchise uh, was impacted quite negatively by a couple moves by Sam Presti that I, I think you could say maybe in retrospect were either premature or in the case of this past even off season, something borderlining on a panic move, or at least you know they've now traded away. I mean, it, the Durant situation was a bit different, but you know they gave away James Harden when they'd never really made him much more than an extremely effective six man whose talent was quite obvious. He becomes an MVP. Um, they trade away Victor Oladipo, and as we'll get to very soon, he suddenly looks like one of the best young players in the NBA. Um, you know, Sabonis and Oladipo quite potentially could have done, you know, I think they would have had a better chance of advancing in this postseason with those two guys than with George and Carmelo. Um, and that's despite it's hard George to say. being very it's hard good. To say. Um, I mean, they were so bad in the Houston series last season. I mean, Victor Oladipo scored fewer points in that season or series than Andre Roberson the team just tanked in the rare minutes where when Russell hit the bench. And I do think that they needed to do something. The George signing or the George trade was, I think good. Although the cost became pretty evident very quickly. And since they're going to lose him, it turns out to be a, a pretty bad deal. But I think at the time it was a reasonable move, um, especially with what we knew about Oladipo at the time, like, you know, he's he's become a star after, but... I, I just Lager. think they're... The, I mean, it says something that they have apparently... It seems like undervalued the talent on their own team and, and maybe overvalued talent elsewhere, and they rolled the dice in a very, very big way. Um, and, I mean, like we've said, 
it, it's it has not paid off and it and it doesn't look like it's going to and that's it's going to send the uh, Oklahoma City down as uh, uh, one of the more snake bit and unlucky I, w- I would say franchises in recent memory and uh, you know who's not going to mind that the city of Seattle um, but uh, anyway we should we should move on and, and speaking of Victor Oladipo um, the next team that was knocked out on our list is the Indiana Pacers who um, are in pretty much the polar opposite situation, I would say, as Oklahoma City. Um, they've got Oladipo locked up on a very reasonable $21 million year, year deal um, through 2020-21. Um, they only have three other players on their roster who will even be under contract in 2019-2020. Um, one of those is DeMontis Sabonis, who's still on his rookie deal. Um, another is TJ Leaf who will also be on his rookie deal. And the final is Ike Anigmanu, who is also on his rookie deal. Um, so they basically just have Oladipo and Sabonis on the hook if they want it um, for a couple of years from now. In the meantime, pretty much their entire team from this year comes back if they want them. They've got a, they've got a $4 million team option on Lance Stevenson. That'll be a little bit interesting. Um, but the big question facing this team, I would say is what to do with Miles Turner because he has one year left on his deal, um, his rookie deal. He's only 22 years old. He's an exceptionally promising player, but it hasn't all quite come together yet, which isn't surprising. He's 22, but he's a guy who's probably going to command. pretty raw, too, coming out of college. Yeah, and he, he was a raw player, but he's he could command. I, I could see him a being a guy where a team throws a huge contract his way. Yeah. And then you put the Pacers in a bit of a bind where do you commit to Oladipo and Turner as your core going forward? That that could be a very, very good problem depending on how Turner uh, pans out. But um, And in general, this franchise is in good shape, but they are one where you're never going to draw a ton of free agents to Indianapolis necessarily. Um, so you really do have to do most of your work via trade or the draft and developing players yourself. Um, landing Oladipo was a coup um, because it is very hard. The, the hardest thing to do when you're one of those teams is get a potential superstar in place. Oladipo looks suddenly like he is potentially that guy. Um, so, I mean, you bring back uh, Pretty much everybody. and Collison and Jefferson and Thad Young and Corey Joseph, and we'll see on uh, Lance Stevenson if they want him back, they can, and Turner and Sabonis. Um, that's your whole team right there. Um, unfortunately, that leaves out Glenn Robinson, whose whose contract is expiring. Um, I suspect he might move on to another team, uh, given he kind of fell out of the rotation even after he got back healthy uh, in these playoffs. But, I mean, I'm expecting the Pacers to compete for the Eastern Conference title next year, especially if uh, LeBron is maybe in another conference. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I would go that far. I do think that the future is pretty promising. They do have um, a ton of flexibility and a little bit of room to make some deals. So there's a lot of potential paths they could choose. Um, if it were me, I would try to keep together Turner and Sabonis. You could play them together. You can play them separately. I think having some dynamic big men next to Victor Oladipo will be nice, just in terms of um, you know rock, roster construction theory, for lack of a better, better term. But... I, I do think that Boston and Philadelphia are going to be a, a cut ahead of the Pacers. 
I just it's I, easy I to look I agree with that for right now. One thing I do think uh, could factor in with uh, with the Pacers is that they have a bunch of expiring contracts. So my guess is they're going to be able to look. I mean, if they're, if they're the contending deal. at the deadline and and somebody's falling off, they they might be able to to be a really active team at the trade deadline. And they've got like, you know, Al Jefferson's owed ten million dollars next year. Um, could they give that to somebody who just wants to cut cap and not lose a whole lot from their team? Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think they could make some moves. Um, kind of going back though, they lost to Cleveland in seven, and but how promising the future is they, they really should have won that series they outscored cleveland by 40 over the course of the series they won in the only two blowouts but lost four of the five games that were close game five a pivotal game five considering that game six was in the indiana blowout uh, lebron hit a game winner at the buzzer in a tie game and game seven they won by four game four they won by four game two they won by three so the pacers it, it's got to feel like they let a huge, huge opportunity slip away because I think they would have had a good chance against the Raptors. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff about that series. I think Oladipo and how he performed, um, there's a lot to take away from that. One thing that I noticed is that he does remind me more of Russell Westbrook in terms of how he tries to play the game a little bit more. Really ball-dominant player, um, good distributor, attacks downhill, likes to kind of back off and get ahead of steam against bigger defenders, um, pulls, pulls up in the mid-range, shoots without a conscience. And I do think spending that time in Oklahoma City may have been for the best in terms of his career de- development, even if that series uh, season itself wasn't particularly good. But Cleveland kind of turned this series uh, temporarily for a little bit by trapping him off of ball screens and even um, doubling him from the wing if he was you know near the top of the key and really forced the Pacers to play four on three so both shined in that short roll uh distribute from the free throw line kind of role but for a while Oladipo's effectiveness waned but then over the last two games he scored 58 points and had 16 assists so I was really impressed by how he responded to that um not in terms of giving up and kind of having that four on three, but staying involved despite all the pressure and the future's bright for them. It, it will be interesting to see how much better Oladipo gets. Cause I, I don't know where his ceiling is. He he could be really good. I'm expecting a lot. His athletic package is pretty unbelievable and he wasn't able to show what he had in Oklahoma city um, or Orlando. Yeah. But let's move on to the Milwaukee bucks. Um, where I think uh, uh, item number one is to get rid of head coach Joe Prunty. Um, in, Interim head coach Joe Prunty. Yeah, in, in game seven uh, against the Celtics, he cycled through 16 different lineups. Um, one of them included Jason Terry and Shabazz Muhammad being on the court at the same time. Um, and uh, their top five uh, in minutes lineups... Um, had a uh, strongly positive net rating. Uh, the remaining 11 lineups that played in this game uh, were just horrid. Um, and that's it, it was just a total panic coaching job. That's how you lose a game seven. Um, so item one for Milwaukee is uh, get a coach who knows how to manage a playoff rotation. Um, 
And then item two is figure out what you're going to do with Jabari Parker. Um, because he is kind of an odd fit, I would say, next to Giannis Antetokounmpo. And he's going to be he's expensive gone. and he can't play he's defense. Gone. There's no chance he's coming back. I think I think the Bucks don't really want him and aren't going to match if there's a reasonably attractive deal out there. Like you said, he doesn't really fit with the personnel, and uh, he's really the only guy who's potentially leaving. And he was kind of um, not very content with how things have gone, you know, with his coaching, with his role, kind of an injury history. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him want to put Milwaukee behind him, and I could see Milwaukee wanting to part ways as well. I mean, the the trouble is that, um, I mean, Milwaukee is kind of in a similar situation that, that we talked about with the Pacers in that this is not a free agent destination uh, franchise. No. Um, and they've made some questionable signings. Um, John Henson and Tony Snell are both locked in for at least a couple more seasons at about ten, $10 million per year. Neither of those guys did much at all in the playoffs. Snell was underwhelming, and Henson was not even playing. Um, Matthew Delavidova is owned owed almost ten million dollars per year for the next two seasons. Um, those that that's the type of free agent deal that Milwaukee can sign. So part of me wonders whether you just take your chance with Jabari Parker, hope you can improve his defense, hope you can convince him. I, I mean, through the ability that you know. At, at least you can throw more money at him than any other team. Um, and yeah, I do think it's worth noting that Chris Middleton was an excellent second option next to Jonas all season, but especially in the Boston I, series. I just think that's... 24 I, points per game over that series. I like Middleton a ton. I just think that when you look at this roster and you see how kind of capped out they are moving forward, um, I mean, things do free up a little bit when... Eric Bledsoe leaves after next year when his contract expires, but then you also have to replace Eric Bledsoe. Um, and they do not have uh, much young guard depth. I mean, they've got Malcolm Brogdon, and that's pretty much it in terms of young guards. They were playing, they, they played Jason Terry in these playoffs. Um, so I, I just wonder, I, I think you've got a, a harder ceiling if you're building a team with just Giannis and Middleton and no other star type. And then you're really hoping for like Thon, Thon Maker to really take it to the next level or to hit the lottery in the draft, but they're not going to be in a, and I mean, hit the lottery in a, in a Utah getting Donovan Mitchell sense, not a, not a get a high draft pick sense because they're not going to be picking in the lottery for a long time uh, with this with this core. So uh, I'm worried about them potentially getting stuck in... It, it wouldn't be quite the Pistons zone because Giannis is too good for that, but uh, kind of this area where they're continually contending, but it's more of a Memphis Grizzlies zone, let's say. Yeah, I do think that they need a second start next to Giannis. I do think um, Middleton is more likely to approximate that than Jabari Parker, who frankly hasn't been that great since entering the NBA with all the hype he had as a recruit and but as, they a, can as event, a college they player. They could have all three. But I, yeah, I just don't know if it's worth it, if it's like an Andrew Wiggins-type deal where it's like, okay, yeah, you're paying way above market value for a guy who you know isn't your best or your second-best player. Um, and I, you know, he's shown less to me than Wiggins so far throughout his career, frankly. And with the injury concerns, I think that's a 
a pretty big risk. The thing to me with the Bucks, they are just so, so mediocre in so many ways, except for Giannis, who's a transcendent talent, who's maybe a top five player in the league and only 23. So however Giannis goes, it, it does kind of remind me a little bit where the Pelicans were a couple years ago with Anthony Davis just dominating on bad teams. But the Bucks were 20th in the league in efficiency margin, below zero. They were worse than the Pistons in that regard. They did get enough wins to make it to the playoff and, and did have a pretty good showing in the playoffs. But most of that was because of Giannis, 26-10-6, and six, um, almost 60% effective field goal percentage. And he really is a transcendent talent. I think with the coaching, they need to have a coach that has better more sensible rotations but to me the biggest thing is getting a coach who can maximize the defensive potential of this roster so you have a lot of guys that are long and can switch and can really um disrupt opposing offenses especially you know if you're downsizing and moving Jonas to the you know point forward or point center role but they had a bad defense this year. They were great in forcing turnovers, but bad in the other three of the four factors. And um, just, I guess, having it'll be a referendum on whoever they hire as a coach because there's a lot of potential here. But as we've seen, um, if that potential isn't really activated, they can just be a solidly mediocre team again. Yeah, I mean. They, they should absolutely be a better defensive team with, you know, Giannis and Maker and Middleton and Henson and Snell. So I mean, those and, guys yeah. are all super long. Um, they've got Switchy. potential. I don't know why they don't switch everything. That's It's become such a trend over the league, but the Bucks would rather, you know, yeah, I Trap guess show on screens, <laughs> yeah, 25 feet away from the basket or whatever. Yeah, Michigan stupid. fans can uh, understand Bucks fans' frustrations with some of their... Some defensive scheme issues. Yeah, so I don't know. The, the Bucks are an interesting spot in, in terms of you've also got to look ahead and see, because um, I, I think their whole thing is going to have to be like, how do you make your roster most desirable for Giannis to re-sign when he's... 26 years old and a free agent is going to be able to command whatever he wants. That's still a few years off, um, but they need to start planning for that now or you're going to have a LeBron situation. Um, yep. Because nobody who's that good should be wasting the prime of their career on having somebody like Joe Prunty coaching guys like John Henson and Tony Snell and Matthew Delavadova around and Jason Terry. So what's, what's worse, the Thunder playing um, Raymond Felton in crunch time of an elimination game or the Bucks going to Jason Terry in a game seven? The Thunder not benching Carmelo Anthony. They did. They did put Carmelo on the bench a little bit more in that game six, but not they, enough. Not enough. Not enough. Not enough. There, you really couldn't do enough, and I know they didn't have other players, but like no, they, Jeremy, they probably could have spent forty minutes a game. Who cares? I don't like whatever. Yeah, I think they would have had a better chance if they'd sent him on a flight home. Um, yeah. But that's over now. Um, and uh, speaking of teams that are uh, kind of screwed, the Washington Wizards are uh, very much locked into their uh, core of Wall, Beal, and Porter. Um, they're paying Jan Mahinmi $15 million per year the next two years. Uh, Marcin Gortat is 34 years old, and they have pretty much zero flexibility unless they decide to just 
scrap the whole thing and start over. Yeah, they're like a slightly richer man's Pistons or a slightly poorer man's Blazers because all of those teams have no flexibility, are locked into their current pretty flawed roster construction. And for the Wizards... Uh, so much Beal is, or so much money is invested in Porter, Beal, and Wall, who um, Wall's extension runs through 2022, so he'll be around. Porter's around through 2020, Beal 2021. Porter's actually the highest paid right now, and his absence in Game Six of the Raptors series, I think, is the biggest reason why the Raptors were able to close out in six and get the first road win of that series for either team. But they don't have enough money for the bench um or their role players at all the rest of the rotation um it's yeah they're pretty much capped out there's not a whole lot they can do trade wise trade wise uh in terms of assets that they could dangle or packages that they could send away unless they're willing to make a drastic move and blow it up but incredibly average team um median efficiency in the league um they didn't have john wall for a lot of the season but ultimately high floor low ceiling kind of is what it is and they're going to have to ride it out i don't think unless unless it's uh nba 2k you can't really make the type of moves to just blow it up like they might want to or might be best for them no nobody's going to be taking auto porter for draft picks uh when he's got no 28.5 million dollar player option coming up in a couple years um john wall will make Forty-seven a million lot of dollars money. in uh, two thousand twenty-two, two thousand twenty-three. Um, yeah, and they're already a team like they use the biannual exception on Jody Meeks this year. Like this is a team that's already Ooh. using like every every corner of the cap. They they use their room exception. I don't know what that is, but they used a room exception this year to get Tim Frazier on their roster. I mean, this, this is a team that just is. 100% locked into what they've got and they're going to shoehorn in whatever players will be able to take whatever deals that they can make that the the cap will allow but uh yeah they're just going to try not to pay too much luxury tax here um and I wonder if they would be better off with Taylor Battle instead of Tim Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> um well maybe they can well, draft the Tony Carr. Right? Uh, Ooh yeah I mean I, I like Tony Carr as a prospect. I know we'll uh, yeah, probably I, have I wouldn't mind him as a, as a depth guy behind John Wall. I think that could be interesting. Yeah. When when you're down I, to I when you're down really. to picking up Ty Lawson late in the season. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you're grabbing Ty Lawson from China and throwing him on the floor in a playoff series, you got something wrong with your roster. And yeah, I'm excited for our draft episode though. We can talk about Tony Carr, Mo, all these other guys. It's gonna be great. Yes. Um with that, uh, we have now run through the deceased, um, which uh, might almost be a literal term when we're talking about Carmelo. In, in case we haven't brought that up enough, I'm sorry, Alex. Um, it re- you really can't belabor the point enough because I feel like it's worth just he biggest disappointment of any player in the playoffs. Just and there's not even a close second. On that note, um, that's all for this week. We will have another another episode coming up next week. I might be taking a week off after that for surgery, but uh, after that we will be back and cramming in as much playoff talk as we can. So uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Not Just a Shooter. We are still brought to you by Gordon Fall of New York Life Insurance. You should still visit his website at gordonfall.com. Uh, thanks to my co-host Alex Cook. We will talk to you next week. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Not Just a Shooter, episode 1.3. I am Bay Sandbender, along with Alex Cook, who I should probably just apologize for this entire podcast. My bad, dude. LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James, LeBron James.